Well, we've been working our way through this class, this this whole series, I guess, from the very beginning in September, called Spiritual Success. Now, I called it Spiritual Success because of what we discovered in Joshua about what God calls success. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, God promises to to His people, you will have success if you keep My Word. So, the question we can ask ourselves is, are you looking for success in life? What is it that is successful to you? Is it, are you looking for success in a high-paying job or popularity among your peers or, or a clean bill of health? What is success? Well, many people think that God's promise of success is a guarantee for health or prosperity, but Paul is a good example of a faithful man who did not receive health and prosperity while he was on the earth. Paul says, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 23-27, through 27, listen as I read, I was imprisoned, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I went went I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Does that sound like success to you? But Paul, much like Jesus Christ, did not live a cozy, comfortable, or even popular life. Jesus and Paul both received scorn, reproach, beatings, and all sorts of other dangers. And yet the Scriptures tell us that no one lived a more successful life than Jesus Christ. He did all that He intended to do. He came to die for sinners. So when we think of success from God's perspective, we should think of doing what God desires. In other words, the will of the Father. Jesus repeated that phrase several times, the will of the Father, throughout His earthly ministry. In John 6.38, He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. You see, God's goal for us is the same that He had for Christ, and that is that we do what He desires. That's exactly what we talked about in the last seven weeks when we looked at God's will for our lives. What is it that God wants us to do? How can we know what it is that He wants us to do? So when God promises uh, success, what, what we're talking about there is doing what God desires. It simply it makes sense that spiritual success is simply doing God's will. So when God promises success, He promises grace for us to do what He wants us to do. That is true spiritual success. So that's just kind of an overview of what we've been talking about. And with that in mind, my plan during this hour uh, over the next several weeks is to instruct us regarding the whole counsel of God so that we are equipped to do the work of the ministry. And I've broken this uh, purposeful discipleship process, this whole thing starting from September going off in a couple of years from now. I've broken it down into five major categories. And if you have um, 
your schedule from the very beginning, it looks like this. It, it shows you where we're at. Okay, we've, we've worked through the very first category, which is called Fundamentals of Christianity. We went through things like membership and uh, some essential truths for the Christian faith, evangelism, fear of man, so on. Now we're, we're moving on to the next major category, and that is Biblical Overview. So what I'd like to do for the next 13 weeks is look at how to study the Bible. Because what we'll find is that it's a very, a very important thing that we, need, we all need to understand. And then we'll look at other things like the, uh, each of the books of the Old Testament, what are they all about? Each of the books of the New Testament, obviously it'll be a, a bird's eye view of those books. And I think that'll be helpful in giving us a, a, a fuller understanding of what we should, uh, of, of what the Scriptures say. And um, so I want to begin today by answering the question that you see there on your sheet on the sheet in front of you. Why is it so important to study the Bible? Why is it so important to study the Bible? Okay, and this list is not exhaustive, but these are some things that I came up with, and hopefully they're helpful to you. Number one, the Bible is how the Creator speaks to us. This is how God speaks to us. And in fact, number two, the Bible is a book about God. If we're going to know anything about God other than what we can gain from mere speculation, then we need to listen to Him speak to us. And this, this word that you have in front of you is, is how God speaks to us. So it's, it's how the Creator speaks to us. It is a book about God. And then thirdly, it is the only way to know Jesus Christ. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And verse 1. The Scriptures are the only way we can know about Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. So we'll stop there. So verse 1 tells us that in, in the past, God has spoken in several different ways. He's done it through the prophets, there's all sorts of other ways that He's done it. Obviously, He's spoken through His audible voice when He, he spoke to people in the Old Testament. But, verse 2, notice, "...in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power." When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, and He has inherited a more excellent name than they. So, God speaks to us through His Son. It says in verse 3 that He is the exact representation of who God is. Jesus Christ is a one-for-one representation of who God is. And so, if we're going to know about God, we need to know about Jesus Christ. And what the Scriptures tell us is that if we're going to know about Jesus, if 
or I, what I should say is, if we're going to know anything about Jesus Christ, we have to go to the Scriptures. All right, and then fourthly, it is the means that God uses to restore our relationship with Him. The Scriptures are the means by which God, the, the means God uses to restore our relationship with Him. You remember, Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship with God, walking in the garden in Genesis chapters one and two, and yet because of the fall, uh, there has been sin. Because of of sin entering into the world, sin passed upon all man. Every person who was born, save Jesus Christ, was sinful. And so God, since that first sin, has been working to restore that relationship with Him Himself so that we once again can walk in perfect fellowship with Him. And what you'll notice throughout the Scriptures is that, that its purpose is really relational. It's not... It's not so much a biography about Jesus Christ. You don't find a lot about what he looks like. You don't find a lot about how tall he was. I mean, we know that he was a Jew. But other than that, we don't know a whole lot about his tastes or his characteristic activities. You find out things about, in, in other biographies that you read, you read a biography about Abraham Lincoln or John, uh, uh, John Whitfield or Elizabeth Elliot, and you're fi- you'll find out about different features about them and different things that they participated in, and so on. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, what we find out about Him is His relationship to God and His compassion for people. And so the Scriptures are not... uh, I I guess the point that we can take from there is that it doesn't matter how tall you are, it doesn't matter how short you are, whether you have a high voice or a low voice or or whatever. Jesus is saying, I want to have a relationship with you. All right, next. Why is it important to study the Bible? It is the fountain from which our our praise to God flows. Okay, if you're going to give any sort of praise to God, if you're going to honor God in any way, it has to come from the Scriptures. It has to flow out of what you know about the Scriptures. And then next, it helps us in times of trial. The writer of chapter 119 of Psalms says... Um, I, if it were not for your word, I would have perished in my affliction. And we know from the New Testament that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it helps us in, tri- in times of trial. Number seven, it tells us what God expects of us, or we could say what God demands of us. And this is what we talked about in the last series of classes, the seven-week class there. It tells us what God demands of us. And then number eight, it is one of, if not the most important thing you can do for your spiritual development. Study the Bible. That is, It is vital to your spiritual growth. So, so in short, your life depends on it. Your ability to study the Bible determines what your spiritual life is going to be like. Jesus said, uh, quoted from the Old Testament that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the idea there is that we need God's words. You see, it, it is possible to live without the necessities of life. That is, without food. I mean, Paul said, do you remember, do you remember when I was reading earlier? Paul said that he had many sleepless nights. 
He was hungry, thirsty, often without food, in cold and exposure. You see, you can, you can have meaningful existence without those necessities of life. But I would submit to you that you, it is not possible to have meaningful existence apart from God's words. That's why man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Paul said, God's grace was sufficient for him, that God's power is perfected in his weakness. And he said, most gladly, therefore, I will boast in my weakness. Why? 2 Corinthians 12.9 So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So for this week and next week, in order to kind of uh, do an introduction to this series on how to study the Bible, what I'd like to do is, is look at how we got our Bible. Okay, we sometimes take it for granted because many of us grew up uh, knowing the Bible or some of you were saved later in life and, and you just thought, okay, the Bible is God's Word, but how did we get the Bible? And so I'm going to uh, look at it generally today and then next week more specifically how it was actually transmitted and, and passed on and, and to the point where we actually got our English version of the Bible, but we need to uh, look at some foundational things first, <clears throat> and so I want to begin by looking at the evidence for inspiration. <clears throat> How can we know that the Bible comes from God? The Bible claims to be the Word of God, and so in this section we we need to ask two basic basic questions: What sort of evidence is there that shows us that this is true, and how can we be sure that the Bible is a reliable testimony? How can we be sure that this isn't just generated by some person who had this harebrained idea of what a religion should be? And so we'll begin here with the character of the Bible. We can know that the Bible comes from God because of the character of the Bible. The Bible tells us that it was God's choice to reveal Himself, to show Himself to the world. And we call that revelation, that God reveals Himself to us. He did this through His creation, Romans 1 tells us. Um, he does it through our conscience. We all know that there is a God and that He is the Creator. Through the person of Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, verse 14. And then God reveals Himself through His Word. Notice Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Here's how Paul describes revelation. That is, God showing Himself to His people or God telling about Himself to His people. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you know that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Okay, that he was God's instrument to write the most of the New Testament. And so what he says in verse 12 is that I neither received it from man nor was it taught to me, but I received it from a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Revelation, uh, God's revelation to us began at the very beginning of human existence. God talked with Adam in the garden. 
Noah was given instructions to build the ark. Abraham was told to go to Canaan. Jacob saw a ladder leading to heaven. God spoke to Joseph in a dream. Moses was commissioned to God to lead, uh, by God to lead Israel out of Egypt. God explained to Joshua how uh, he, would, he would fight against the city of Jericho. All that was revelation. And now God took that revelation and He began to have men and women begin to write it down. And now put it into what we call inscripturated form. And that began around 1500 B.C. Um, unless Job uh, was written earlier. It's not exactly clear when the book of Job was written, but, but Moses, we know, wrote around 1500 B.C. And it went all the way till the end of the first century A.D. Um, so we have the perfect writing down of revelation and that is what is known as inspiration. Okay, you see that word on your first sheet, the evidence for inspiration. That's what inspiration is. It is the inerrant, the the perfect writing down of God's word. Second Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen say that all scripture is inspired by God. So while revelation comes uh, concerns material which is made known. Inspiration concerns the ultimate product, that is, the Bible. The written Word of God came about as the Holy Spirit directed human authors to write down what God wanted them to write down. And so as a result, the Bible is, and I put on the bottom there, inerrant. All that means is it's without error. There are no errors in what was originally written. In other words, the words that were written down were the exact words that God wanted to be written down. Therefore, nothing should be added to them and nothing should be taken away as Revelation tells us. So the Bible is without error, verbally inspired revelation from God. Okay? So how can we know the Bible comes from God? First of all, because of the character of the Bible. That is, that it's perfect. And then secondly because of the claims that come from God's Word. Now, we don't have time to go through all these, but I, I put those references there for, for you to look up on uh, if you'd like to study this more. But throughout Scripture, the authors claim to be under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So, David said, for example, in 2 Samuel 23.2, "...the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His Word was on my tongue." See, he recognized that what he was receiving was from God. In Matthew 15.4, Jesus quoted what Moses wrote and called it what God said. In Acts 28.25, Paul said that the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah. Um, the disciples were, were, um, were used of God to write down Scripture in some cases as well. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians to, to correct some problem there in the church, he declared, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. See what he's doing there? He's saying, these things that I'm writing to you as a church, Corinth, are the Lord's commandment. He recognized that he had the authority of God to write these things. And so, Jesus um, even confirmed what was written in the Old Testament when he uh, 
when he was here on the earth as well. He said that, that these things the, in the law, the prophets, and the writing are from God. So, the claims of the Bible. The, the Bible claims to be true itself. We know from John chapter 17, verse 17, when Jesus prays to God, He says, Sanctify them, the disciples, by your truth. And then we could say, Jesus, what is, your, what is God's truth? And He says, Jesus says, the Word is truth, or your Word is truth. That is the Bible. So Jesus claims that it is inspired and that it is um, without error. Alright, next, the uniqueness and the unity of the Bible. The Bible is a unique library of 66 books. Okay, we've got 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, mostly Hebrew and Greek, but there's a little bit of Aramaic, and then on three continents, Europe, Asia, and North Africa. And yet, although it's unique in those ways, it does have one message. Okay, it has one message. Now, we'll get to that when we start talking about how to interpret the Bible. That's one of the first and most foundational truths that we have to understand, that the Bible has one message. And we'll talk about what that is in the weeks ahead. But what you'll notice about the experiences of these different authors is that they had several different occupations and, and experiences. Moses, for example, was a leader trained in the land of Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a, a herdsman. Joshua was a military general. Nehemiah, a king's cupbearer. Daniel, a prime minister. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi. David, a shepherd. So you have all these different men coming from all these different backgrounds. And they wrote in a variety of places, such as the wilderness, a dungeon, a palace, their book, their books include different type of uh, types of genre like history and poetry, romance, prose, and and prophecy. And there are a cast of of close to three thousand different characters in this book, depicted in fifteen hundred places. They wrote on controversial subjects, and yet they had perfect harmony. They had perfect unity in what was being said. So. If you look at the Scriptures as a whole and say, well, it's probably just a, a collection of different stories and, and events that, that happened. They put it all together and it doesn't really fit. But what you'll find is there's actual, actually harmony among all the books and there is a unified message. The amazing thing is that, that people... A lot of people disagree on, on different topics. Okay, you, you go to your doctor, your family doctor with a problem and then go to another doctor and the same set of circumstances, they see the same thing and yet they see it differently, don't they? And yet, here in the Scriptures, we have 40 different authors over 1,500 years talking about the same thing. Okay, The fact that Jesus Christ has come to the earth to die for sinners and they have complete harmony, perfect unity. The Bible has also been translated into nearly 1,700 languages 
and has stood the test of time as the most valuable book in the world. So the unity of Scripture is a convincing, a convincing argument for the, uh, for the fact that the Bible is from God. And then next, uh, we see all this fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. And there's all the, these prophecies that were that these men before they occurred, before the events occurred, prophesied about something, and then later on we see that event taking place, being fulfilled. Uh, in fact, over the 25% of the Bible is prophecy. And if you put together all the prophetic messages into one book, you would have a volume larger than the New Testament. The prophecy the uh, prophecies of the Bible deal with a number of different subjects, people, and events. Okay, and I've listed several of those for you here. Certainly, this is not exhaustive. But what I want to point your attention to is to the, the prophecies about our Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Promised One. They were fulfilled in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. It, it included things like the place of His birth. Micah 5.2 says that from you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, will come someone who is great. A person who has been been alive, that is, he has existed from eternity, but he will be born in a place called Bethlehem. And we find in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, that indeed that is exactly where Jesus was born, in the city of Bethlehem. It also includes the fact that he was born of a virgin. There's a prophecy about that, and of course that was fulfilled in the the Virgin Mary. Uh, There's a prophecy about His betrayal, the piercing of His hands and feet, His burial, and so on. So, several fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. And then if we look at archaeology, we'll also find many interesting things that um, validate, I would say, the Scriptures. Not that the Scriptures need to be proven, because they are what we would say is self-attesting that is they are they have proof within themselves they don't have to you don't have to set up all these validations and say okay here's why here's why god said that it's true god's given us his word and so on its own it stands the test um and, and it should not really have to be put up to any test but if we want to look at archaeology we'll find that there are all sorts of things uh that show that all these things that are talked about in here, I mean, think about all the different people and places that were named in this book. And yet, none of them have any errors. There are, there are no historical errors in them. I mean, uh, for example, Luke named 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without an error. Um, and we find from different archaeological uh, items that that the things in Scripture indeed are true. The most significant of which is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, we'll talk about that here in a second, but um, the Dead Sea Scrolls is is a group of manuscripts that was found in, the, uh, I think it was the 3rd century A.D. that, that went back to... Uh, it showed us that a lot of the Old Testament writings were, in fact, legitimate. All right, any questions before we go on to the development of the Old Testament? Okay, so we, Mark? Oh, you know what? They were found in the they were found in the 20th century. They were from the 3rd century. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that here in a second. The development of the Old Testament. 
when was the Old Testament written? Okay, I've already kind of alluded to this a little bit. They were written between 1500 and 400 B.C. Okay, so 1500 and 400 B.C. One exception could be the book of Job, which some think was written around 2000 B.C. And they were written on various um, uh, various tablets and scrolls, uh, stone and clay tablets, tablets, leather scrolls. And during this period, the Old Testament was written down in Hebrew, the Hebrew language. Uh, there's portions in Ezra, I believe, that was written in Aramaic. So we have Moses beginning this process when he wrote down what God had to say and even the events of what, what was going on. And then we have it conclude with Malachi and Ezra around 400 B.C. And this was the end of the Old Testament. And so between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we have is about 400 years where God doesn't speak. Okay, God had spoken in the Old Testament these 900 years earlier or whatever, 1,100 years and now he's got a period, we have a period of about 400 years where God doesn't speak through His Word. I mean, He's speaking through the Old Testament, but, but no new revelation, I should say. Um, then, around AD 33, um, Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, this is actually when He's leaving uh, during His earthly ministry in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He validates the Old Testament by saying that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he breaks the Old Testament down into three main sections, which is what the Greeks often or the uh, the Jews often looked the, the way the Jews often looked at it. They they saw the law, that is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law. We call them the books of the law, Moses's books there. And then you have the prophets, which come at the end of the Old Testament, which uh, I believe begin with Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and goes all the way to Malachi. And then between those, they call those the writings, which include both historical things like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then poetry like Psalms, Proverbs, and uh, and Song of Solomon, and so on. So Jesus broke down the Old Testament into those three main sections, and he's saying that those writings okay the, that scripture was was fulfilled in me all of the old testament is pointing to me okay and now i'm coming to the earth to fulfill what the old testament has to say and so um so we have validation that way as well um so how was the old testament text copied how was it copied over the centuries, the Old Testament books were were copied, not with a copying machine. Okay, not with the you remember the Ditto machines. We uh, we had those in high school, um, but the it was copied down by hand. Okay, these books were copied very accurately in most cases by special scribes who developed intricate methods of counting words and letters to make sure that they had. Uh, an, actu- an accurate copy of what was what they were copying from. Okay, so let's take the very first scribe that took the very first manuscript. Maybe he had a portion of Isaiah, 
and he wants to copy it so that he can disseminate it or keep it for himself. They would have professional men who would basically count, make sure that they had word for word. Because you can imagine when uh, in the Hebrew language they have no vowels. Okay, So they're, they basically have um, usually three-letter radical words they call or three-letter root words. And then they kind of add on to those words. But the, it, it kind of all just um, can be very confusing. Probably not for them, but for me it, it was very confusing. And and what they would do is copy down these letters word for word, and make sure that they they had it correctly. But but obviously uh, with these men, uh, in a lot of cases, having other occupations, it was a difficult task. But what we we know from history is that we have thousands thousands of manuscripts tens of thousands of manuscripts of the original and so these men would would take time and copy them down by hand they would take very careful pay very careful attention um now obviously if you copy down something by hand there's going to be scribal errors okay now if we take this sheet of paper here we put this in the copying machine and copied a hundred times there's probably not going to be any uh, there's not going to be any errors unless we're getting more and more smudges as we take the, the new copy, put it in the copy machine. Um, but if we were to copy this sheet down word for word ourselves, okay, and then take that copy and copy that one down word for word, there could be errors over time. Now, as we work through this um, class, we'll see how, how they overcame those errors and how God providentially worked through those men and overcame those errors. But, um, but, the, but the great part about the Scriptures is that we don't have just one copy. Okay? It wasn't like one person had the copy and now he has to get it right exactly. And if he doesn't get it right, then, oh no, we don't have God's Word. Okay? What was happening was when they had different portions of the Scripture, they were making multiple copies. Different people were making multiple copies and so... What, the, what happened was that you were able to take all of the copies and figure out from those copies what the original was like. Okay? I, I'm hoping we're, we'll have time in this class to talk about how to do that. But, um, but what we can be sure of is that what we have is the Word of God. So, how do the Dead Sea Scrolls relate to um, the Old Testament? Between 1947 and 1962's 1962, biblical scrolls were discovered in the caves along the shore of the Dead Sea. And these scrolls had been preserved in, uh, in that cave. They, they had been written down between 250 and 100 B.C. I said 80 earlier, it's actually B.C. by a group of Jews from the Essene sect. And they lived in a place called Qumran. They were a communal society and they spent much of their time studying and looking at the Scriptures, copying them down. And of the 900 documents that were discovered of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 of those were Old Testament manuscripts. Now, before this discovery, the earliest copies we had of the Old Testament was 8,900. And when these copies were compared, the, the ones from 900 A.D., okay, take these from 900 A.D., not, not what, 1,100 years ago? Take these and, and look back and, and compare them to the ones from 1,100 years before that, 
what they found was that these copies um, were were just as clear. It is it, it basically showed us that what we had in 900 A.D. was accurate compared to what 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 they found in 250 B.C. that matched up with those two. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were very significant in in helping further show that that indeed we do have uh, God's Word in written form and and that uh, as a whole it is um, it is a trustworthy book. Alright, so that's the Old Testament. Now let's look at the New Testament. When was the New Testament writ- written? The books of the New Testament were between five or 50 A.D. and 100 A.D. Okay, so this is after Jesus had died. They were written by apostles and those closely associated with Him. The originals were completed around A.D. 100, and these also were copied by hand until we get to the invention of the printing press in A.D. 1456. And right now, we have more than 5,600 existing Greek manuscripts. Okay, so... The New Testament was written in Greek. We have over 5,600 of those types of copies. And there are 18,000 18, non-Greek manuscripts and about 36,000 Latin quotations from the New Testament. So we could say that the New Testament is by far the best attested or proven ancient document in history, whether sacred or secular. It has the most... Uh, from a secular perspective, uh, validation than any other document in history. Now, how was the New Testament put together? The process of discovering which books should be included in our Bible is called canonization. The word canon literally means measuring rod or ruler. And so the 27 books of the New Testament were were recognized or they were measured to make sure that they were accurate, that they were actually God's inspired words. And what determined whether they were part of the New Testament or not? Well, there's four major things. First is, the book had to be written by an apostle or had to be approved by an apostle. And of the 27 New Testament books, only Mark, Luke, Acts, James, and Jude and possibly Hebrew, Hebrews, uh, were, were not penned by apostles. But as we're studying on Sunday mornings, Mark was an associate of Peter, so that was approved by Peter. Uh, Luke was a companion of Paul. James was called a pillar of the church in Galatians 2.9. James and Jude were, were half-brothers of Jesus. Uh, James saw the resurrected Lord and was a leader of the church at Jerusalem. And the author of Hebrews, although not given a name, uh, seems to have validation from the book itself. So first, it had to be there had to be apostolic authority that had to be approved by an apostle or written by an apostle. Secondly, it had the book itself had to claim divine authority that this was from God, and each of our 27 books do that. And then thirdly, the theology that they taught had to be internally consistent. Remember how we said that the Scriptures as a whole harmonize? They, they are unified? 
so when the the early church fathers looked at these books, they wanted to make sure that they were internally consistent, that they did not have any errors in them, and that helped them see what what exactly was uh, from God and what was not. They had to be used and accepted by believers. Throughout history, the New Testament books have overwhelmingly been accepted by the church. And this last criteria, this number four, is, is more powerful than it first seems. For example, suppose you went to a bookstore and cataloged all their books. How many of those books in that bookstore would, would be there 50 years from now? Or 100 years from now? Or 200 years? Or 300 years? How many of those books do you think would still be there? I mean, go to your local library and find out how many ancient documents you actually have in there. Not a lot. I mean, people are constantly writing newer material, updating information and so on. But 300 years after the New Testament was written, it was clear which books the Holy Spirit was using in the lives of the believers. So these church fathers looked at, okay, which books are actually being used of God in the church? And these are the ones that have to be from God. So so the combination of those four things is how we know that, that our... New Testament, our Old Testament, is from God. Now, of course, the the New Testament was copied much like uh, the Old Testament, that is, by hand, by scribes who would just copy it down by hand. Um, and then what would happen after those those copies were made, what you would have is people who would come by and look back at those and they would look at the two documents and make sure that they would have what we would call uh, correctors. Okay, they simply just look back and make sure that there are no errors. Now, I want to talk about the Apocrypha before we're finished. Um, per- perhaps the most deba- debated writing outside of the Scriptures is the Apocrypha. Okay, is this really part of the Bible? Should we include it? These books were written near the end of the Old Testament. I said between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was no inspired Word of God during that time? Well, some people think that the Apocrypha is inspired, that is, from God. And there are several reasons why we should not include them in the in the Scriptures. Number one, they were not written by a prophet, uh, nor were they, uh, nor did they receive the authority of a prophet. So there was no inherent authority in these writings. Number two, they never claim divine authority. Remember our first two things? They had to have apostolic authority and divine authority. Authority from God. But the Apocrypha never claims divine authority. They don't claim to be a record from God. And number three, Jesus and the New Testament writers never quoted from the Apocrypha. They never quoted from them. Even though they're aware of these writings... um, and on the other hand, hundreds of quotations are in the New Testament that come from the Old Testament. You see how you see how the Apocrypha doesn't meet our standard, the, the canon, the standard, the rule that is required. Now, what I put for you on the back sheet is a a graph. How is it that God's word gets to us? Okay, because God doesn't speak to us in clouds anymore. God doesn't speak to us in dreams or visions. He speaks to us through His Word. So how does that whole process work? And it begins by a thought in the mind of God where He reveals Himself to a human being 
through the process of inspiration, they compose it, they put it down on paper without error, and then these early church leaders put them together in a collection. They copy them, manuscripts, and then they're put into different translations. See, we don't we don't uh, bring our Greek or Hebrew Bible to church and and read from that because uh, we just we just don't know those languages very well. So we need to have it in the English language. So we have all these different English translations, and then from there, through the process of illumination, the Spirit helps us to understand what is there, what God is saying. That's a thought in the mind of the believer. And then by and here's the process that we're going to work through. Observation, interpretation, and application. Here's how we determine what it is that God's saying and how we apply it to our lives. And it results in a changed life. And then we go back and we tell the Word to others. And then they go through the process of illumination and so on. Alright, so hopefully that's... Uh, Helpful. I, I think it was helpful for my understanding. Are there any questions about how we got our Bible? We'll talk more about some of the specifics uh, next week, and then we'll get into interpretation, uh, how we can understand what the Bible is saying.